Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong Whether I find a place in this world or never belong I gotta be me I gotta be me What else can I be but what and that is the question, Sammy. And you were emphatically you. So we're uh, today going to do kind of a cross-disciplinary meditation on the whole idea of authentic and authenticity. When you think about it, you know, I was thinking about just, I don't know, humans 10,000 years ago. Kind of Paleolithic to Neolithic right in there somewhere. I mean, I wonder if authenticity was already an issue. Because there's got to be that guy who says, oh, no, this meat is really fresh. I killed a bison about two hours ago, and it's like some, you know, dead animal he found at the bottom of a cliff or something. (laughs) It's, like, important to know whether, you know, people are being authentic with you and whether something you're receiving, the latest piece of, uh, the latest Clovis point, you know, it needs to be authentic. Anyway, I'm babbling. Uh, We're going to start right now with, in some ways, the representative of the organization that got all this started. That would be Merriam-Webster, which declared authentic the word of the year for 2023. Uh, And Peter Sokolowski is uh, now joining us, as he has many times before, editor-at-large at at Merriam-Webster. So, Peter, welcome back. Welcome back. Happy New Year. And maybe just remind people how it is that Merriam-Webster arrives at its decision. It isn't really a subjective one quite as much as it might seem. Sure. Uh, It's uh, a statistical one, really, because the Dictionary Online has a lot of visits, and a lot of visits mean a lot of curiosity about words, and so we measure that curiosity. We have 100 million page views a month on the dictionary, and what we do is we take the data at the end of the year and look at which words were looked up uh, in 2023 that were not looked up in 2022, Um, and we also in that way, take account of words that are just problems of the English language that have nothing to do with uh, the calendar year. And in that way, we found that the word authentic was looked up appreciably more than in previous years. And it also responded to this sort of crisis of authenticity. Uh, When authenticity is questioned, we value it more. And one of the other finalists this year was the word deepfake. Mm-hmm. And, and practically every single week this year, as you know, we had stories about artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this sort of longstanding belief that we tend to focus on something when it's endangered. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, you know, Wild West shows with Buffalo Bill Cody happen really kind of at the end of the Wild West, not in the middle of it. Uh, and and so, yeah, we probably are very interested in authentic and authenticity. Although, Peter, this is one of those words that doesn't have just one meaning or it has a meaning that meaning that pervades through a lot of different bits of terrain. In other words, a, a person can be authentic 
in the sense that he or she or they are true to themselves and are like Sammy Davis, you know, I mean, uh, are representing themselves authentically. Um, I mean, John Stewart feels more authentic than Wolf Blitzer does. Uh, but then there's also the question of a painting being authentic. There's the question that you're bringing up. Uh, at what point do we um, identify stuff that's AI generated or just technologically generated in a way that isn't entirely accurate or true? To what degree do we bring that word authentic and authenticity to bear on those kinds of problems? But I feel like it isn't just one thing. And, you know, I mean, I, well, I don't want to have a political conversation with you about this, but arguably the fans of Donald Trump see him as more authentic than the average politician. Oh, absolutely. And I think the word connects to identity in that way, right? I mean, that's what that's really what we're talking about. And the word is connected to things like the word cuisine, authentic cuisine, and authentic self, authentic voice. And so that really connects directly to identity. So you're absolutely right. Uh, we are living in the age of identity without question, whether it's pronouns or political affiliations. And uh, that is certainly true, what you just said. Yeah, we interchange authentic with real a lot of the time. But what we really mean, I think, is authentic. Uh, yes, when you mentioned cuisine, I immediately thought of my boss of all bosses, Mark Contreras, our CEO. When he got here, he wanted to know where the real Mexican restaurants were, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I automatically, you know what you know what he means. But he's really saying kind of authentic, right? He's saying authentic Mexican food as opposed to some, what somebody in California decided in a gelato was. Well, exactly. And to me, that that introduces the important idea of removing the intermediary, Some, you know, something that is direct uh, to, in this case, a culture or a cuisine. Um, and so removing the intermediary, that gives us the genuine or the authentic experience, whether it's hiking in the Grand Canyon or uh, eating in a, in, in, a, in a restaurant in Rome. Uh, and so that's what we're getting at. And it's an important idea, but it's also an abstract idea. So I would suggest that this word authentic, like the word integrity, like the word intimacy, these are abstract ideas that people go to the dictionary to confirm and to think about. Yeah, I think that is why they're going to the dictionary. I mean, we could take it out of the abstract. I mean, there's a concrete dif difference between an authentic $100 bill and a counterfeit <laughs> one. Um, but I think what, what brings up the questions, what brings up the need for the dictionary is that more abstract level. So just just as we're kind of wrapping up here, I'm also I'm going to ask you to take off your lexicographer hat and put on your music authority hat, because uh, I think it really comes up in interesting ways in music, right? There's, you know, Lead Belly is more authentic than, you know, maybe some white musician 20 years later doing a Lead Belly song. Although Kurt Cobain doing a Lead Belly song seems very authentic somehow. Um, John Coltrane playing My Favorite Things might seem more authentic to some than Julie Andrews singing it. But it is it comes up in music a lot. And I think what we mean there is has something to do with originality and also just something to do with, I don't know, personal commitment to a musical idea. But I, I'd love your take. We should say Peter is kind of a jazz expert and, and hosts jazz programming and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's an important question. I mean, the blues is uh, the authentically American form. Uh, and to many people, uh, Gary Giddens famously said, Louis Armstrong proved the profundity of the blues. Here he was presenting himself as a pop singer, as a pop musician in the 1920s, but playing the blues, uh, which came from gospel, of course. Uh, so you, you're absolutely right. But I would, I guess, circle back to that term identity, which is that we might associate um, a 
certain kind of genre or a certain kind of music uh, uh, with a certain time and place. For, for example, disco, we, we make an immediate association. Uh, and so, but we're also living kind of in the age of also, aren't we, where we can have uh, uh, someone like Wynton Marsalis, who very authentically plays 1920s style jazz without pastiche. Uh, and I think that's important, too. And, and that is, I think, kind of a postmodern take, if you will, on what authentic really is. In other words, playing something with respect and knowledge uh, doesn't necessarily mean you have to live the blues and suffer and you know lose your house and your family <laughs> uh, but you can still be an authentic musician and 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 present that kind of uh, aesthetic all right i would love to continue this conversation because i have more to say <laughs> but uh, you have to get going i have to get going peter sokolowski editor in large at marion webster thanks for your time uh and we are going to uh, segue now as soon as i release uh, peter from his telephone bondage. No, no, we're not going out of the segment. No, no. Stay, staying with the segment. Uh, now joining us uh, is George Newman, an associate professor of organizational behavior at the University of Toronto, uh, who recently wrote about the psychology of authenticity. George Newman, uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Uh, happy to be here. Um, you know, in a way, it's good that I wrapped up with Peter talking about music because uh, some of your interest in authenticity does date back to, I believe, 300-year-old string instruments uh, and your parents. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Um, my, my, both my parents were uh, classical musicians. Uh, they were uh, bass players. Uh, and both the instruments they played on, uh, you know, had these remarkable pedigrees you know they're like 300 years old they get passed down from generation to generation and and so you know i think i i, I spent even as a kid some time thinking about like what does that mean and and kind of assigning some special value to these particular objects and and thinking about the history of those objects is very much a part of them so i you know that it's definitely kind of played a role in in some of my thinking uh, even as a psychologist today so I, some of authenticity, first of all, we just talked to a lexicographer about authenticity. You get asked to define authenticity with some regularity, and, and I, I think you, to a certain degree, kind of demur uh, about doing that. Say why. Well, you know, I, I think you guys had a great conversation and brought up a lot of the reasons why, because, um, you know, at, at, a, at a really high level, you know, if you say uh, something is, is authentic or, or what is authenticity, you're, you're just saying it has the property of being real or true. But that doesn't really kind of answer the question of what are really what are people trying to get at? You know, what's the deeper thing there? And um, and you know what the way that we've thought about it, why I have thought about it in, in my own work is to think about it um, almost as, as a process of, of verification. So it's kind of thinking about the word authentication. And that ultimately we're trying to figure out the truth of something. Um, and usually when we use the word authenticity, we're trying to find out the truth about things that we can't readily observe. So it's these kind of intangible aspects, these things that we find valuable or meaningful, but we can't directly see them. And so we use the term authenticity to talk about those un unobservable characteristics and whether, you know, the things that are right in front of us possess those things. You know, I was uh, thinking today about the German philosopher Schelling uh, said true charm is only possible precisely if it does not know about itself. And I think that's somewhere in the in the world of authenticity, too. If you say, hey, I'm authentic, 
that's, that immediately raises questions about whether or not you're authentic because you're making a conscious choice about it. And something about authenticity implies the, the focus on the task or work or, or, or product or whatever as opposed to thinking about how you're going to come off. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think that's one. So we, we kind of think about authenticity as different components or different types. And one of those certainly is about kind of values that one of the things that I'm trying to assess are deep down what somebody's values. And so when you make those kinds of presentations, hey, I'm an authentic person, you're kind of you're getting this mismatch or a perceived mismatch between what you're presenting at the at the front of the stage, uh, if you will, and then kind of what's behind uh, the curtains or what, what people might infer to be behind the curtains. And, and that's, you know, a big part of, of an authenticity judgment. I, I think we crave it. Um, I don't know how much he has penetrated into Canada, uh, but here in America, the most popular podcast is hosted by a guy named Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is kind of the, does the opposite of what we do in public radio. He doesn't really prepare for what <laughs> the show he's about to do. The shows often run for three hours because it takes him almost that long to figure out what it is that they're talking about. But, but he's popular, I think, and people are often popular because they seem unstudied. Uh, you know, if you listen to public radio, you probably figure out that we maybe we pre-interview the guests and I'm looking at a rundown uh, on, on an iPad and there's some planning that went into it. And there are people who I think equate spontaneity with authenticity. I wonder whether that's a reasonable inference for them to make. Yeah, I, totally. I mean, I, I think there is this notion uh, of, of connecting with somebody's true self that that when we're when 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 somebody's being authentic we're going to kind of connect with them in this unfiltered way i think what's really fascinating about it is is authenticity is very much in the eye of the beholder so you know two different people could could both listen to joe rogan and somebody could come away and say wow you know that what an authentic uh, interviewer, you know, and and somebody else says, oh, I don't, I don't think he was authentic at all. There's a lot that seems rehearsed there. So, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's very much about the kind of the criteria that people choose, and, and maybe even things like their own uh, motivations, political motivations, etc. Yeah, I mean, which is paradoxical too. The idea that authenticity is essentially uh, a, a result of a subjective set of reactions um, is a little worrisome. But but it is. It's you have you have shown how fungible it, it can be, and and maybe the best way to do that is to tell the story of the Queen's Goblet study. Explain that to us. Oh yes, yeah. so this was a, a great study that was done actually by some uh, uh, close collaborators, uh, Bruce Hood and Paul Bloom, um, and they were interested in in young children's um, uh, ideas about authenticity. Do young kids care about authenticity at all? And so they um, uh, built a, a fairly elaborate device. Uh, they told children that they had a, a duplicator machine, uh, and then. Um, they said, okay, we're going to put some different objects in the duplicator machine. Um, and, you know, they chose some ordinary objects at first. Uh, and then they took something like, um, they said, oh, this is the, the Queen's Goblet. The, the study was run uh, in, the, in the UK. So this is a high value item. And they said, this is the Queen's Goblet. And we're going to put it in the duplicator machine. And voila, now there's two identical goblets, uh, the original uh, and a perfect copy. And they asked the kids, you know, which one do you want? And these were pretty young children, um, five, six, seven years old. Um, and overwhelmingly, all of the kids wanted the original goblet. So they didn't want the duplicate, even though, you know, on the surface, they looked uh, they looked identical. And so that's 
you know, something that all of us participate in, or almost all of us participate in, um, and it's almost a fetishization of, uh, or maybe Freud would say it was a cathexis. Uh, For example, I have an autographed picture of Brian Wilson. Uh, Brian Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys, and somebody whose music has meant a lot to me that was given to me as a gift. And it is important to me that it's signed by Brian Wilson and it's gone through an authenticator uh, who authenticates autographs and things like that and bought from a reputable dealer and all that kind of thing. But I mean, to your point, why is it important to me that it's signed by Brian Wilson? Uh, I mean, it's not like he can have any kind of deeper relationship as a result of that. So some other mechanisms going on there, right? Oh, for sure. I, 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 yeah. So, uh, um, you know, your, your former guest mentioned the idea about identity. I think the meaning that you associate it with is a big part. But you know, something that we found uh, in, in our research as well is that it has to do a lot with uh, magical thinking. Hmm. That, um, that, that part of it is rooted in this idea that when objects come into contact with famous individuals, celebrities, or musicians, that maybe a little piece of them kind of rubs off on the object. Um, and that's what's making it valuable. That's what that, you know, that's why we want the original autograph or, or I want my, you know, uh, uh, an heirloom that was, uh, uh, you know, from the queen uh, or, you know, some other kind of celebrity memorabilia um, is that it kind of contains a little piece of the person, like uh, kind of some historical cooties or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah. And and I, I wonder how much magical or irrational thinking goes into that. Um, I mean, just to even go back to your parents, there are people who would say that you can make a violin today that sounds as good as, if not better than a Stradivarius. Um, But there's something else that we're talking about here. And I guess authenticity has something to do with that. Uh, But react to that. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think you're getting into some really fascinating territory that I think kind of gets to the core of just who we are and how we perceive the world, which is, you know, we are meaning makers and we we search for meaning all around us, but we're also very physical creatures. And so, um, you know, we, we, I think, look for places to instantiate that meaning, which is this very intangible thing in kind of a physical reality. And, and I believe that a lot of these authenticity judgments and our valuation of authentic objects is about that process about us kind of instantiating meaning in, in, in a physical reality. So you've actually looked at this almost at a quantitative level. You know, to what degree is the possibility that Jackie Kennedy ran her finger around the edge of a picture frame going to add value to that picture frame uh, above and beyond what it would just simply have as a picture frame. And we're back to this cooties, like positive cooties question, right? Exactly. Yeah. Positive cooties. I should have, I should have (laughs) clarified positive cooties for sure. Um, Yeah. So that's actually um, in that paper, we uh, looked at uh, several uh, celebrity auctions, but one was what was called the auction of of Camelot. So uh, Sotheby's auctioned off all of uh, JFK and Jackie O's possessions after Jackie O passed away. And so, you know, it's this huge data set, all kinds of things, you know, some very iconic objects like, you know, JFK's rocking chair, um, but, you know, some other things, just like very mundane objects. Um, And what we did is we had uh, some research assistants go through and just in the entire data set, we just said, you know, how much contact do you think somebody would have with this object? They scored it on, I think it was one to nine scale. 
And so when we enter that into the model, controlling for lots of other factors, we actually find this, this dimension of perceived contact, like how much contact does it seem like somebody would have with uh, um, you know, uh, a lamp versus something that was hanging on the wall or something, you know, a toiletry versus uh, other something uh, decorative. Um, those items that had more physical contact actually wound up selling for significantly more at auction. So we could actually predict uh, the auction results from from that measure uh, of physical contact. It's amazing because it also, I mean, obviously nothing would have had more physical contact, although perhaps less glorious physical contact, than JFK's rocking chair. Although the other thing that happened at the time of JFK was that sales of rocking chairs, specifically rocking chairs that were made to look like the ones, the one that he used, went through the roof. Everybody wanted one. So yes, there's magical thinking attached to the actual possible physical cooties that might be on, you know, any, a lamp or something like that. But there's another way that we try to reach out and touch these figures who mean something to us. And, and that's doing the opposite thing, just getting a knockoff of something. Well, yeah, that's why I think it's it's really interesting because you're kind of then getting back to the different senses of authenticity that you were talking about, you know, at the top of the program where, you know, I think that that's triggering kind of a, a different sense of authenticity having to do with maybe like kind of an essential nature, right? That, that an, an association. So, um, you know, th there are ways in which something could kind of embody the essence of, of JFK. Um, even if it didn't physically touch him. And, and that might be valuable to us too, not as valuable as something that he actually touched, but but uh, more so than you know uh, other types of objects. We should also say that there's there's another irony there in that the Kennedy Camelot was itself a kind of fiction, mostly generated posthumously, curated by Jackie, and and hiding you know some pretty significant health problems and the fact that they were getting injected with you know with amphetamines by Doctor Miracle Max. And there was a sort of a lot going on behind everything that we understandably glorified at the time and certainly immediately after the assassination. But, I mean, authenticity is interesting that way, right? You can you can sell people on an authenticity, which is entirely cooked up. Totally. That, that uh, you know, that, that it's very much about the story, but then it's also that's something that people can can update. And you, you've certainly seen that with, um, you know, some visual artists that have maybe fallen uh, out of favor or you, people have learned uh, facts about their histories that kind of have changed the way in which the work is perceived. Um, you know, and we've we've kind of looked at that uh, uh, the dark side of of the cooties as well. That that when you know somebody is maybe associated with uh, moral transgression or some other kind of of harm, that that you know that can have a negative effect, right? And it's actually far worse if that person has had a lot of contact with the object than than if they didn't. Yeah, you know, I know you have to go, but we should say you find that out with auctions of Bernie Madoff's stuff. People, exactly. oddly enough, they didn't want an original Bernie in their house. Uh, all right. Well, I know you have to go, uh, but thanks so much for, for talking to me. The, the piece was fascinating uh, and great to have you on. Uh, George Newman, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the University of Toronto. We'll take a break. We're going to talk about the very direct role of AI in this conversation.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Yes, we're going to talk very specifically about this. Um, I'll just quickly say that uh, some of you know I teach a course, a seminar in uh, political journalism uh, in the political science department at Yale. And at a certain point during most semesters, it'll happen again in the semester that's about to start, I realize that my students are getting way ahead of me. So last year, there's a project we do at the end where we kind of simulate a political campaign. One team was simulating a Tim Scott a presidential campaign. Uh, and as I was watching their presentation, suddenly Tim Scott started giving the speech, except that it wasn't, it was Tim Scott's voice giving a speech that they had written. They had just AI'd it. It was the first time that it's happened in the time that I've been uh, teaching that course. Uh, and I just realized, boy, we are not in Kansas anymore. Uh, joining us now, though, is somebody who can tell us where we are instead of in Kansas. Uh, that would be uh, Ethan Bueno de Mesquita. Uh, I actually heard a fascinating conversation between him and Galen Druk on the, Galen Druk on the 538 Politics podcast. Uh, he's the interim dean and Sidney Stein professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. So, um, Ethan, first of all, welcome to our conversation. And then second of all, yeah, we're about to head into an election cycle that is tinctured by AI in a way that nothing has been before. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you pick where, where to start in this conversation. But as we, as we crave authenticity and want to be reassured about it, uh, we're facing some unusual or at least very new um, sort of hurdles to that. So I don't know. Start us somewhere. All right. Thanks. Great to be with you. Um, yeah, we definitely are. And I think uh, authenticity is a, a kind of an amazing way of framing where we are thinking about elections. Um, I, mean, I think, you know, AI is going to do lots of things to elections. Some of them, things we're a little bit familiar with from our last decade of dealing with social media and elections, where I think, you know, authenticity issues were also pretty live. I think that, you know, one of the great challenges for elections in 2016 and 2020, especially in the United States, um, that social media uh, sort of you know, gave us was often we didn't know who was speaking and often we didn't know whether what they were talking about was real or fake in, in a kind of 
you know, the world of the internet is often anonymous and you could fake things. And we had lots of information that was highly contested and we didn't know what to trust. And I think AI is in some ways that on steroids. You can at scale create incredibly convincing, as you experienced in your class, incredibly convincing material that looks real and is fake. And it's going to leave us in an information environment where we really are at sea with respect to whether or not we can trust information that we would otherwise use to inform our votes. And it's going to call into question what information is available to voters and then societally how we feel about our capacity to you know, engage in informed voting. But I'm glad you began the way that you did, because one of my questions is has to do with whether this is a paradigm shift or part of a continuum. The truth is, before there was any AI or anything resembling AI, I could still get rid of an image of me standing next to Jeffrey Epstein, right? I could edit a photo. I could get myself out of it digitally anyway. Um, I'm not saying there is one. But, um, you know, <laughs> that, and, and that, you know, like even look at radio. So this show is is done live, and you can tell it's live because I'm stumbling over everything and mispronouncing stuff and everything. Terry Gross, uh, Fresh Air, is very, very rarely, maybe even never live. This American Life, Ira does an incredible amount of editing, even will sometimes shop a different sound onto a different word or have somebody do 20 retakes of a sentence. But we don't see that as fake. Uh, And certainly AI isn't involved in it. I mean, human beings have been using technology to adjust presentations of fact and truth for a very long time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think this is a really important point. Um, My my view is that it's not quite uh, just a step on a continuum, nor is it quite something completely new under the sun. It's somewhere in between those two. Um, you know, dirty politics, politicians lying, politicians manipulating information to get what they want. That is as old as politics. Um, and we are accustomed to that. We are accustomed to the fact that elections are a dirty business. And so I think we shouldn't panic too much uh, over the fact that there are going to be a dirty business in some new ways. Um, they have always been a dirty business. Uh, that said, I do think what in ways that are troubling is it makes it cheaper, it makes it faster, and it allows a level of um, convincingness and change that would have been, I think, low. Oh, we might be having a little Zoom problem here. Um, all right. I'm going to just uh, talk for a second while we, while we try to figure that out. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would first of all agree with what you're saying there, that, that there is a qualitative difference that, that's so sharp um, that we really have to sort of adjust our sensors and figure out how to cope with it. And that's something that you've been looking into. I'm going to hope your Zoom has come back up uh, and that you can talk a little bit about what might we do about that to avoid it becoming a worse problem. Yeah, I'm. You know what? I'm going to say Zoom is is not coming back here. So, um, what we might do here? I'm going to suggest something. I'm going to suggest that we go to a break. We might need to get him uh, on the phone. We can bring him back, and we'll kind of combine the two elements of this C segment. Why don't we give ourselves time to do that? So we'll grab a quick break. We will get Ethan uh, maybe on the phone, bring him back for that, and have him be part of a two guest C segment. Here we go. We'll take a break. We'll be back. I 
Some think it's noise But I think it's pretty And so If I love it sparkling Our technical producer today is Cat Pastor. Uh, this, uh, this episode was produced by McCusker, the Wonder Kid. Our senior producer is Lily Tyson. She's out there somewhere worrying about our technical problems. We're fine, uh, but we're back uh, in, in a different way with Ethan Bueno de Mesquita, uh, the interim dean and Sydney Stein professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. We're using something called a telephone to talk to him. I didn't know they were still around. I thought everything was Zoom. But uh, first of all, welcome back. Hey, sorry about that. No problem. So then we need to talk uh, a little bit about remedies. Um, I mean, if, in fact, there's a significant shift, uh, a qualitative shift uh, in the ability to deceive us with something inauthentic, how do we devise kind of, you know, an ad hoc system of authentication when it comes to AI? Yeah, I think that's, it's interesting to start thinking about solutions. And I think, you know, there's two problems we need to address, one of which is uh, the problem that we can fake material. And the other is the problem that our ability to fake material so quickly allows politicians to deny real material. So you think about some of the most authentic things we think we hear are things like, for example, a hot mic event or something like that. And now a politician can just claim, well, actually, that's a deep fake. So we're in this kind of double bind that we need solutions to. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about, you know, one of the, the solutions we've talked the most about, I think, in the public discourse has been things like labels. We're going to water. There'll be some technological solution. Anything touched by AI will get a watermark on it. And then social media websites will be able to stick a label on it. And we'll just see what's, you know, what's AI and what's not. And I think, you know, I think we put a little too much faith in technological solutions. I think that the problem, of course, is, as you indicated, we edit lots of things with, um, with AI. Almost everything gets touched by AI. Now, if I want to remove red eye, if I want to take somebody out of a picture of me, it doesn't have to be uh, Jeffrey Epstein. It can just be someone in the background. Um, I use AI for that. So if we start labeling everything that's been touched by AI, it'll look like everything's inauthentic. And that's not right, of course. So I, I guess I wanted to think about one other solution, and it actually comes back to something Peter said in an interesting way. Um, he talked about sort of authenticity having to do with getting directly to the source and not having a mediator. And one of the things I think AI will do for authenticity is it's actually going to push us in some ways back towards mediators. And I don't mean we're going to want, you know, just like all our content to be mediated, but we're going to need professionals who are willing to sort of attest that something is authentic. So I think one of the things social media really did is it took us away from professional journalists and towards citizen journalists and looking at things online and all information was equal. And in a world where AI can fake so many things, we really might want to get back to a place where we are looking to professionals who are willing to sign their name and their reputations to a piece of material and say, no, I'm willing to tell you this is authentic. I shot this video or I made this recording and I know it's real. And I think that actually could be an interesting change in our politics back to a kind of pre-social media era kind of thing. Not that we'll just have Walter Cronkite telling us what to think, but that each of us will identify who are the people whose you know, willingness to put their reputations at stake and say this is, is, is real content 
is meaningful to us. And the other option would be to have some kind of, you know, high priesthood or a council of Vestal Virgins or something who would who would look at stuff. And, and, you know, I don't know about the watermark because it could be after a while people just start, stop noticing the watermark. But, but some kind of process in which uh, an independent board – because, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, it's very meaningful when somebody says, yes – I, Jake Tapper, you know, reported this piece and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's no AI in it, <laughs> whatever. But then, you know, there's a lot of people who go, well, he's just a guy saying that it's true. And how do I know that that guy is an AI anyway, telling me that the other thing is an AI? You kind of want that third party, although the record with the social, with social media having third parties intervene and moderate isn't really terrific. But say how you see it with AI. Yeah, I mean, so this is the this is the sort of the fact checking solution, uh, if you will. And I do think there's going to be a role for fact checking this style organizations. I think we will see the emergence of consortiums of journalists or academics or other people from civil society who are going to try and certify what's authentic and what's not. That will, I think, in the same way that 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 things like fact checking and third party verification on social media became extremely divisive and polarized, that will too. I mean, that is. I think there isn't a solution to the fact that, you know, to the, to the state of the world that, that we are just skeptical of one another in our polarized politics. So I guess I'm, I'm all for, you know, civil society organizations of experts saying we are willing to do some investigation and say what we think is authentic or not. I think it's naive to think that that's going to be a substantial solution to our sort of broadly polarized uh, take on information. And I think the best we can probably hope for is that individual citizens will say like, look, I'm a whatever, I'm a CNN kind of person, or I'm a Fox News kind of person, or I'm a Breitbart kind of person. And what I care about is, was the, you know, a person that I trust willing to attach a digital signature or publicly attach their reputation to this material. And that's the kind of material I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm in a trust. And I think it's probably too much to hope that at the same time we will solve the problem that we 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 simply trust different kinds of information because we think different kinds of things. Right. I mean, I I can't help but think of Stephen Colbert and that character he used to play on his, his old show, The Colbert Report. And when he in- introduced the idea of truthiness, he said, and everybody knows that facts have a well-known liberal bias. Um, and, and I certainly encounter uh, among conservative people the idea that fact-checking has a liberal bias. If I say, look, you know, Annenberg just looked at this, you know, and it's not true, they just discredit the fact-checking process. And I, I worry about that level uh, of, of solipsism or whatever you might call it infecting the whole question of AI. I I do, too. I think one of the problems that we've run into in fact checking, and I just think this is in some ways a a natural outgrowth of it, is that we, we, we ask too much of it. There are, you know, there's a set of questions which are factual, right? You know, the population went up or it went down in a city or a state, and that's just true or not true. Um, and there's a bunch of questions which are highly disputed and we're not sure of the answer, et cetera. And I think when we create fact-checking organizations, they push at the boundaries of those things, and they push at the boundaries of those things in ways which, in fact, probably reflect a, a point of view on the world. And so I think not all claims from the left or the right that evaluations of information sometimes bleed from, you know, from black and white questions of, of, of fact to gray questions of opinion are wrong. Some of those are right, and I think that's an inevitable fact about fact-checking itself. And that's why I don't put as much stock in it, I think, as some, that I think it just inevitably is going to be contested. There's just always a gray area. And once we start 
We're going to inevitably bleed into the gray areas, and then we're going to be arguing about it. So last uh, area to get into. I mean, obviously, we've been through uh, a period in education that involved media literacy, trying to understand particularly social media and digital media uh, and, and how to evaluate claims made on it. I don't know what grade we would give that at this point, but we're, we're going to do something new. And I was pleased to see, I, I should say this, I have said to some of the classes that I've taught, I've said, look, I don't care if you use Wikipedia, but do me a favor, become a contributor to Wikipedia or an editor, whatever yeah. the hell they call it. I am, you know, and then edit some articles and see how that goes. Um, because you should understand how this process works before you decide whether or not to trust it. You're telling people to do the same thing with AI. Absolutely. So one of the things, you know, we did a big survey of Americans to find out how they think about AI. And um, one thing we learned is that, that you know, most Americans haven't, haven't used even, even a chat bot or whatever. So they really have no idea. And when you ask them how they're going to use AI for elections, the most common thing they say is the thing they would be most likely to do is ask an AI a factual question like, where's my polling place or what is election day, which is exactly the opposite of how you want people to use AIs. AIs don't know the answers to those kinds of factual questions. And, you know, potentially they could make them up. The, the big AI companies are being very careful as best they can to make sure that ChatGPT or Bard won't answer Where's my polling place? It'll tell you if you ask it today, it'll tell you something like go and ask your secretary of state. I don't know the answer to that kind of question. But we you really don't want people answering asking those kinds of factual technical questions to AIs. Whereas if you ask them a question like, you know, I think uh, the following things about policy. Do you think I'm more of a Republican or a Democrat? It might do a pretty good job. If you could imagine a campaign, you know, making a virtual Ron DeSantis who you could chat, chat with, you might actually find it engaging and learn a lot about what Ron DeSantis thinks. So there's uses of AI that could be really good. There's uses of AI for elections that are quite bad. And until people start interacting with these things, they're not going to have any sense of which those are. And so I do think, you know, there's lots of work going on now in civil society on AI literacy, which is, I think, to the good. But I think the best thing a person could do if they want to become AI literate is spend an hour with ChatGPT. It's not hard, and you'll learn a ton about what's going on just just from a little bit of time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Ethan Bueno de Mesquita, thank you so much for your time. Interim Dean and Sidney Stein, professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. And then we're, now we're going to switch gears to the world of art authentication. I'm, I'm not used to doing this without the break, but it's going to be just fine here. I think I used to do radio shows exactly like this. Joining us is Jeffrey Taylor, a partner at New York Art Forensics and a U.S. Fulbright Scholar to Lithuania. He wrote the book, The Art Business, Art World, Art Market. Uh, Jeffrey Taylor, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as we're talking about authenticity, obviously authentication of art is um, a whole separate field and, and one that has very high stakes. So maybe we can you can just sort of walk us through some of the elements of that. I mean, you typically start with what is called provenance. So and which is basically, you know, is there some kind of proof that the art came in an orderly fashion from where it should have originated to where it is now? But you can maybe say a little bit more about how that works at a practical level. Yeah, that's obviously, we think about it as a three-legged stool of the process of authentication, of which there is a visual examination, what we might call connoisseurship. In other words, does it look like the artist? That used to be all they did back in the 19th and for much of the 20th century. 
Uh, provenance is that other leg of the stool, which is sort of a history of the artwork, where it's been and who owned it. And the most recent element that is now crucial is the scientific analysis of the artwork to determine whether it is correct in its materials to the time it purports to be. And now really a correct examination, what we do at New York Art Forensics would involve all three of those. And I think that's really important because we are facing a constant crisis of forgeries in the art market. Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, oddly enough, in some ways, particularly with that third leg of the stool, the more recent something is, the harder some of those text techniques may be uh, pressed to either authenticate or de-authenticate it. Whereas if it's got titanium in the paint, you know it's not about a jelly, right? There's certain things that, you know, 100 years or 200 years or 300 years are huge game changers in terms of what shows up uh, in terms of scientific analysis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is that's absolutely true that when you are dealing with a Renaissance painting, there's really a very limited set of pigments that they had available. You know, honestly, you could list most of them on your two hands. But of course, as we get into the 19th century, they expand. And in the 20th century, you have dramatic new tech uh, types of pigments and binders that uh, that make the paint. Uh, you know, so that can be a problem. Say, for example, one of the biggest issues, you know, we come across in recent artists is, of course, uh, Basquiat. And Basquiat was only working in the 1980s. And so many of his paints that he was working with are available. And yet we still find that there is technological advancements that would make it actually difficult for someone to get a hold of the exact paints that he might have been working with. Right. And there, I mean, when you're, you know, you've done a lot of work with Jackson Pollock's. I mean, yeah. this is a fair, obviously fairly recent work. So a lot of the materials are not going to betray one thing or another. And then there's the issue of, well, there's no way Jackson Pollock would have made that spattery thing there. That's not the way he did it. I mean, I, that's a harder call for the referee to make. It is. It is. That is actually one of the features of connoisseurship it was based on this technique that this guy giovanni morelli had developed to look at renaissance artists and particularly looking at the hands and the ears of the figures if they are done in the way that the master would have done it or perhaps a copyist whereas with pollock you don't have hands and ears and you know there was a uh, a lot of people who claimed to be, let's say, connoisseurs of Pollock and could identify the way the paint was poured. And yet we have had a number in the last decade of two decades, we'd say that of just cases where the experts have been fooled again and again. Uh, for a while, we had a guy who was uh, proposing that he could measure the fractals on the way the paint was poured <laughs> and yet we've found that again those uh techniques can be hijacked and they don't really prove to be guarantees and the only thing that we can really go with is a material analysis and the truth is the paints that pollock worked with are actually pretty hard to get now mm. uh they were they're different. The the ones that he had available to him in the 40s and 50s, uh, those those binders 
uh, have changed. So uh, we have only about two and a half minutes left, and I'm about to open up a one-hour can of worms. But, um, uh, you know, there's a whole change in art uh, towards conceptual art and minimalism that brings up a whole bunch of other problems that Jeffrey Taylor probably can't solve. Uh, I mean, a Saul LeWitt uh, is authenticated. I mean, you know, it's it's an idea. It's a concept. It's, you know, 30, yeah. 38 yeah. three-inch curved lines drawn on yeah. such and such a service. And and there's usually a COA, right? A Certificate of, of Authenticity uh, yeah. yeah. from Saul LeWitt. Although there have been cases where that's been lost. And then now, how do you prove that you own that piece of work you can't help that person or can you <laughs> you 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 pose a great question there exactly and that's exactly one of those conundrums with the conceptual field which is that it relies on these concepts of certificates of authenticity and this attachment to an intangible concept which you know gets back to the Walter Benjamin article about you know the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and this you know concept of does this work have a, a sort of authenticity that is tangible and it's only gotten worse with the oh you know the recent phenomenon of the NFTs, where, again, <laughs> they're essentially trying to attach these metaphoric representations of authentic physical artworks to things that are intangible and uh, calling them non-fungible when, in fact, they are infinitely fungible. And, again, we can apply these labels and these certificates but ultimately it's just like you know you know blowing into a hurricane that you just can't really uh, alter that essential phenomenon Right. So I, just to, for people who are a little bit confused by what I said before, so Solowit typically did not make those marks himself. And, you know, some uh, other artists that he would hire would go up to, to MoMA or wherever and make those marks. Uh, Jeffrey Taylor, great to talk to you. Partner at New York Art Forensics and U.S. Fulbright Scholar to Lithuania. Wrote the book, The Art Business, Art World, Art Market. We didn't have time to talk about the Warhol stuff. That would have been interesting, too. But we got to leave now. Thanks for listening. Thanks to everybody who helped. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.